Vayikach Korach ben Yitzhar ben Kahas ben Levi. And Korach, who was of course the son of Yitzhar, the grandson of Kahas, and ultimately from the Shevet of Levi, took Dasan Aviram ben Eliav, Vaon ben Peles, B'nai Ruvain, these other three characters of Dasan Aviram and On, who are from the tribe of Ruvain. And this is how the infamous story of Korach begins. However, many of the classical Mepharshim are bothered by the opening words of our Parsha, Vayikach Korach. What is Korach taking? Who, what does that mean? It seems to be a very awkward and even perhaps misplaced a verb. Vayikach Korach. He didn't actually take anything. We look high and low, we see the Pasuk. He didn't take anything. So what does it mean, Vayikach Korach? So in the classical Mepharshim, there seem to be three, broadly speaking, three interpretations. Rashi, inspired by Unculus, Unculus who in his Aramaic uh, translation or interpretation of the Pasuk actually uses the term V'ispalag, which means separated. doesn't mean he took anything, he didn't. It's a V'yikach as a euphemism for he separated. And Rashi, based on that, explains Lakaches. Atzmo, he separated himself. Whereas the community led by Moshe was, so to speak, on one side, he separated himself from the community, perhaps, uh, as the Ramban and others seem to understand Rashi, literally in a physical sense, he moved away, he separated himself, he moved apart as a demonstrative way to show his orer alakuna, his complaining about the the privileges that were given to you know Moshe and Aaron's family respectively the Leviya the Kahuna and he was Machsiklemachlokes and this interpretation you know is quite uh, meaningful and for us to learn from uh, if not just if nothing other than to highlight the consequence of Machlokes and the fact that it's something quite serious and quite real you can't just kind of brush it under the under the table uh it's it's really it's separating yourself uh, sometimes it can be something minor but sometimes it really can be something cataclysmic which you really are cannot come back from so to speak there's a second interpretation brought in most printed editions of Rashi. Uh, in many, it's in brackets with Davar Acher. And the reason it's in brackets is because in the early editions of Rashi, it wasn't always there. And in fact, some scholars suggest that the reason it wasn't always there is because it's actually not from Rashi. There was a younger contemporary of Rashi named Rav Yosef Kara who interacted with Rashi. And in fact, some of his manuscripts of Rashi, his handwritten manuscripts from Rashi, uh, basically... Uh, became the source of many of the first editions of the printed uh, Rashi. But scholars have noted that there are a number of examples where uh, comments that this Rav Yosef Kara wrote in the margin of his version of Rashi, which was clear in the original were only his, wrote his comments on Rashi, but over time some of those got confused and became interpolated into Rashi itself. And some have suggested that our our Rashi is an example of this, that perhaps this is not really Rashi, this Davar Acher, but in fact really Rav Yosef uh, Kara. Whether it's really Rashi or not, uh, the idea, which is very fascinating, and is said by Rashbam and the Chizkuni, so definitely we have Rishonim who make this point, whether Rashi or someone else said it in his generation, and that is the Vayikach means Moshach Roshay Sanhedros Shebehem Bidvarim, as Rashi puts it, or we have it in our printed Rashi. That is to say, Vayikach here doesn't mean taking, but rather it means persuaded, Rashi says, again, or Rashbam or Chizkuni, as the case may be, that Korach took, in the sense that he persuaded the leaders, he persuaded Das and Aviram, he persuaded On to go with him and rebel against Moshe. That this was 
uh, he was not taking anything in a physical sense, rather he was persuading them to follow him down this road. Of course, it ended up being a road of peril and destruction ultimately, but he persuaded them to follow him. And again, this also is an important interpretation because it highlights the power of words. We sometimes give short shrift to words, we dismiss people as just having a quote golden tongue, maybe being hollow suits and just having, you know, fancy language. Uh, but the truth is the matter is that, uh, in a, in a, in, irrespective of the substance, but somebody who knows how to speak well, someone who can be persuasive and convincing, can in fact do, if he has mo- good motivations, great things. And if he has lesser motivations, can do horrible things. The power of words, the ability of words to divide people and move people in a very meaningful, real sense, is highlighted by this second interpretation, which may be from Rashi or maybe from this younger contemporary of Yosef Kara, and is definitely in the Rashbam Necheskuni. A third idea is brought up by the Ramban, based on a different comment in the Medrash Tanchuma that suggests that Lokach Eitzah Bilibo, that is to say, Korach took, what did he do? He took himself. How did he take himself? Lokach Eitzah Bilibo, he took advice from his heart. Instead of following his mind, his rational faculties, which perhaps would have understood that this was the wrong move, instead he fell prey to his emotions, he took advice from his heart, he chose to follow his heart, which was giving him uh, messages of jealousy and pursuing and pers- uh, running after honor, and that is what led Korach down this uh, perilous and ultimately disastrous road. What's interesting is that the Mizrahi, who quotes this Ramban, is not really convinced that the Ramban is right. He defends Rashi's interpretations. But even within the Ramban, he suggests perhaps the Ramban didn't read the Medrash exactly correctly, because Ramban seems to still say that Korach was in control, but he chose to take advice of his heart. The way the Mizrahi suggested is not that Korach was the subject, but that Korach was the object. Korach was taken by his heart. That is to say, he was overcome by his desires and he actually lost control and fell prey to his own emotions uh, and baser inclinations. And I think this is also really, really important and there's a subtle difference because according to the Ramban, he may have made a wrong choice, but he was still in control. According to the Mizrahi, once you kind of open yourself up to allow the emotion to to creep in, very often the emotion overwhelms and takes control of you. The famous contemporary psychologist Jonathan Haidt has a very famous uh, analogy to illustrate this very point. Psychologists talk about two systems in the human brain, exactly what Ramban and Mizrahi are talking about, the rational and the emotional. And he compared it to a human rider atop an elephant. And the rider might have all sorts of analyses of decisions of where he wants to go, uh, and try to lead the elephant uh, in that direction. However, that only works as long as the elephant is interested. But if for whatever reason the elephant decides to go in a different direction, so the elephant is, of course, who has all the power. And if there would be a conflict, the rider might think he's in control, but soon enough he's going to find out that it's really been the elephant the whole time carrying him. And that's exactly what the Mizrahi says happened to Korach, as he lost the battle of his emotions. He thought he was control, but in fact he was not. As Korach and his followers gather against Moshe, they challenge his political leadership. How dare you take such leadership for yourself or for your brother? After all, Kikol Haeda Kulam Kedoshim is not the entire congregation holy. Is it God not found among all of us? And if that's the case, Madua Tisnasu Al Kal Hashem. Why do you raise yourself above the rest of the community? In other words, Moshe and Aaron are being accused of seizing the power illegitimately, by what right they are challenged, do you have to be the leader? Rashi quotes, in the name of the Medrash Tanchuma, 
a second argument. It's not found in the Torah, but according to Chazal, a second argument that Korach and his followers had against Moshe. And they asked him the following question. Hypothetically, if you had a garment made completely of tcheles, does it also need a single string of tcheles as part of the tzitzis that go on that garment? To which Moshe responded, yes, the halacha is, a four-cornered garment needs tzitzis with tcheles. And then the Medrash tells us that Korach and his followers ridiculed and jeered and started laughing at Moshe. After all, if one little string is enough for an entire garment, wouldn't an entire garment of tcheles be more than enough? What do you need an extra string for? The Medrash adds a similar second story with the question being, if a house full of Sifrei Torah needs a mezuzah, to which Moshe responded, yes. And again, Korach and his followers ridicule Moshe, they laugh at him and they say, if usually just two sections of the Torah, Shema and Vahaya, are enough for an entire house, and now many, many Torahs filling that house, so that wouldn't be enough? What is going on in this second argument? We understand quite well the political challenge that the Torah text tells us about. But this second argument, quoted by Rashi from the Medrash Tanhuma, what type of argument is this? How are they challenging Moshe? Why is that necessary for that second argument? And Rav Soloveitchik, in a incredibly famous, maybe one of the most famous drushas he ever gave, I believe originally in 1973, I have found it at least in three printed uh, works from or about Rav Soloveitchik, one, a book published not that long ago by the Me'ota Harav Foundation called Vision and Leadership, the Chumash Mesorah Sarav here on Parshas Korach, and I think perhaps the earliest is in Rabbi Bezdin's incredible Reflections of the Rav in Volume 1. All three of these have different versions, but more or less shorter or longer versions of this incredible drusher that Rav Soloveitchik gave in 1973. And the Rav addressed himself to this question. What is the heart of this second complaint that the Medrash and Chazal are telling us Korach lodged against Moshe? And Rav Soloveitchik explained that as opposed to the first argument, which challenged Moshe's political leadership, this one challenged Moshe's halachic leadership. If all of the Jews are equally holy, then we are all equally holy, and all equally entitled, excuse me, to interpret halacha. Why, Moshe, should we listen to your interpretations of halacha if we're all equally holy, we could all equally interpret halacha? In other words, said Rav Soloveitchik, instead of acknowledging that there's some specialized and highly conceptual way of understanding and applying and analyzing halacha, something which would then obviously require the expertise of scholars who had invested great effort, why not, argues Korach, why not just interpret halacha using common sense, easily accessible to everyone, all reasonable people should have the right to interpret the halacha as they wish. And this became, in the Rav's memorable phrase, the common sense rebellion against Moshe, which really is the common sense rebellion against the traditional understanding of halacha. And over 45 years ago, when this drusha was originally given, Soloveitchik acknowledged just how attractive this argument was and remains, not only to Korach and his generation, but even at the time, 40 plus years ago, Sedov Soloveitchik, throughout the community, in popular magazine articles, in synagogue shul ritual committees, people think, they discuss, they even debate, all sorts of different positions on various complicated halachic issues, without any recognition, he added, that the people who are having these discussions and these debates on the pages of magazines, and we would add in our day, social media or other such platforms, they're lacking in any expertise or real knowledge of the halachic issues. Why do they even think they should have these discussions? 
And the answer is, says our Soloveitchik, because they too have internalized the message of Korach's common sense rebellion. The argument flatters people's common intelligence. It frees people from the need to submit to an authority. It doesn't even demand years of hard work and toil in the base medrash. Who wouldn't love that? And as Rav Salvechik pointed out, how come there was no rebellion against B'Tzalel? He got this tremendous position of power. How come no rebellion against him? Why specifically a rebellion against Moshe? And the answer is, said Rav Salvechik, because everyone then and now understood, when it comes to something like the Mishkan, the obvious need for architectural, engineering, and construction expertise. But what Korach and so many in our own day and age do not recognize is that just like in these other fields, like in science or in math, they have their own internal logic, categories, and methodology. So too when it comes to halacha, it is a self-contained system, a divine system that operates on its own logic and with its own categories. And Rav added one final point. Why did Korach and his followers, why do even people in our day and age, why do they succumb to this terrible mistake? Because on a deeper level, the argument is rooted in what he referred to as religious subjectivism. The belief that the ultimate meaning for anything is a person's subjective feelings. The mitzvah is at best meaningful because it gives concrete expression to my feelings, my emotions. But the ikr is my feeling and emotion. In which case, my common sense is the greatest arbiter and judge of what those feelings really are and how they should be expressed. But we reject this set of Soloveitchik, not only because the inner, not because inner feelings are not important, of course they're important, but they operate in the opposite direction that people think. First comes the objective halachic act, and only then comes the feeling, which is my interpretation of that fixed act. The mitzvah includes the emotion, and induces the emotion, but not the other way around. As the Rav said memorably, with this we conclude, Judaism is both a discipline and a romance. We absolutely need both. But first must come the discipline, only then will the romance have a firm foundation to rest upon. And that's why the common sense rebellion was so misguided and such a misunderstanding. It failed in the time of Korach, and it's doomed to failure in our day and age as well. Chazal spent a considerable amount of time focusing on both the motivation and method of Korach's rebellion against Moshe and Aaron. Rashi, in the outset of our Parsha, tells us that Korach was initially motivated by jealousy over the fact that his cousin Elisafan was appointed to be the Nasi of Bnei Kahas. After all, Korach reasoned, Kahas, the grandfather, had had four sons. Amram, the oldest, and his two sons, Moshe and Aaron, got the greatest kavod, the two jobs of being Moshe Rabbeinu like a, Kohen, like a Melech, excuse me, and Aaron like the Kongadol. However, the next son is Yitzhar, and that's Korach's father. And therefore Korach reasoned that the next position of prestige, the Nasi, the prince of the, this Levite family, should go to him. However, instead of it going to him, he's passed over for his younger cousin, Elitzafan, whose father is actually the youngest. Uziel is the youngest of the children. And therefore, he feels like he has a very legitimate argument that Moshe has passed him over unjustly. Rashi, a little bit later in the Parsha, in Pasuk Zion, adds that even though Korach had to know, certainly as the process unfolded, that this was going to end badly for him, nevertheless, he couldn't pull back. He couldn't save himself and his family, and he ended up seeing it through to the end, even though he must have known this was going to end badly for him. How come? So says Rashi there, based on Chazal, that he was blinded by a vision. He was blinded by a vision that he had seen, presumably with Ruach HaKodesh, that one day, one of his descendants would be none other than the great Shmuel Hanavi. In fact, we know that Shmuel was a direct patrilineal descendant, 
a Ben Acherben, 16 generations after Korach. Not only was Shmuel Hanavi a descendant, Shmuel who was so great that the Gemara Antinus says in some ways he was as great as Moshe and Aaron, but furthermore, from him would also come 24 Mishmaros of Leviim who would work in the base of Migdash. And therefore, Korach reasoned with such illustrious and prestigious descendants to come from me and my family, how can I be quiet to this injustice that is being shown towards me, towards my father, towards our family? Clearly we are deserving of this position and it's injustice that it's being robbed from us it's a matter of principle, I must stand up for it. This twisted logic blinded Korach and ended up leading to his destruction. The great stipler Gaon, the Rav Yaakov Yisrael Kanievsky, most well known for his multi-volume work of Chidushim on the Gemara, on Shas, known as the Kilas Yaakov, also has an additional thin single volume of insights into Chumash called Birkas Peretz. And in that Sefer, the stipler points out that the answer to Korach's claim, a claim that perhaps at first blush seems legitimate, after all, if Yitzhar is his father, maybe he should come first. He should have been the Nasi. Says the stipler, the answer to Korah's claim is the very fact that he created a machlokis over the leadership was in itself the greatest sign that he was unworthy of leadership. How could someone so animated by personal kavod be given a position of religious leadership? The taivas kavod, the overriding desire for honor, is the opposite of genuine leadership, said the stipler. Now that we focused significantly on the motivation and the flaws of Korach's motivation, the stipler turns his attention to the method of Korach's rebellion. We know from Chazal, very famously, that Korach's method was to try to ridicule Moshe by using two similar forms of argument. The first being, he asked, a beged shekulo treles, if you have a garment that's completely made out of treles, do you need to add an additional string of treles? To which Moshe said yes, to which Korach responded that that's ridiculous. If the whole garment's made of treles, what do you gain by adding an additional string? Similarly, Korach asked, if you had a bias mali svarim, a house full of Torahs, do you need to add an additional mini-Torah, as it were, a mezuzah on the doorpost? Moshe said yes. And again, Korach ridiculed him. If the house is full of complete Sefer Torah, what does having a miniature, small Torah, mini-Torah, on the doorpost add at all? The stipler continues in his explanation and says, in a very brilliant insight, that in fact, if we examine these two arguments of Korach in a very deep and subtle way, we will see that embedded in these two arguments is the very same flaw and the desire for personal kavod and the blinding uh, power of personal negios that we had mentioned previously are in fact is embedded in both of these arguments and questions that Korach asked Moshe. First, the idea that according to the halacha as Moshe states, a complete garment made of treles is insufficient and you still need to add the extra string, says a stipler, this is because a full beged, even made of treles, cannot serve in itself as the mitzvah. Since, as we know very famously, the purpose of tzitzis is to remind people of spirituality, the color of the tzitzis reminds you of the sea, which reminds you of the sky, which reminds you of Hashem, etc. The purpose of the tzitzis is to serve as a spiritual reminder for religious aspiration and personal growth. If that's the case, says the stipler, the actual beged, the beged itself, that is worn primarily for warmth and protection. And once it has that and provides that personal benefit to the wearer, to the owner of the garment, then that person will never be able to see the spiritual goal that is supposed to be reminded us through the color. You'll never be able to see that spiritual goal in a way that is completely disassociated and disconnected from your personal benefit. And therefore, we need an extra string which serves no personal benefit and it just serves the function of a religious reminder. Similarly, the house full of Torahs, is insufficient and still needs a mezuzah, because a house is designed for the personal use and benefit of the owner. 
Therefore, it, the Torahs, while they're wonderful, but you can never appreciate the house full of Torahs in a way that completely is divorced from the personal benefit you get from the house itself. And therefore, a mezuzah is supposed to be a spiritual reminder to anyone going in and out of that house in placed on the doorpost in such a way that it is serving as no other purpose, has no other benefit to the person other than the mitzvah itself. Says the stipler, we see, therefore, embedded in both of these questions, Korach's flaw. That is that he didn't understand that when you have personal negios, when you focus on what's best for you, what's in it for you, looking out for number one, even if mixed into that are some very legitimate and valid concerns, but once you mix in personal negios, taivas of kavod, personal benefit, that is a contaminant for genuine religiosity and authenticity, and therefore that's why, in fact, Korach was totally disqualified for a position of leadership. And therefore, says the stipler in conclusion, even though Korach saw through Ruch HaKodesh, the great Mesorah, the Shalshelis that his own family would have, and that vision of Shmuel and etc. should in and of itself have saved him from his Machlokas, since he saw in the future his family would achieve great Kavod. And yet his desire for personal Kavod and his personal Gios blinded him and caused and led him to his downfall. A very profound and insightful lesson for every one of us. The great machlokes between Korach and his followers against Moshe and Aaron is a good opportunity to take a step back and try to understand the Torah's general approach to machlokes. What is our approach to this? How do we understand the Torah's insights into something which we intuitively assume is a bad thing, but perhaps we need to understand this in a deeper and more subtle way? Let's start with a few statements of Chazal commenting on Psukim in our Parsha, and I think they are curious statements, but by analyzing those statements, it'll perhaps provide a roadmap to a deeper approach and understanding of this important and critical issue. Number one, Rashi comments that when you see the tremendous and cataclysmic destruction that occurred to Korach and his followers, not only themselves were killed, but also all of their families, including children and little babies. So Rashi quotes from Chazal that this illustrates kamakasha machlokes. There's simply nothing worse than machlokes, because other punishments you need to be at least, at least, bar or bar mitzvah. You need to be at least the age of maturity to get punished. And yet, when it comes to machlokas, no one, even babies, are spared. And that's a very attention-grabbing statement, but it really begs the question, why? Why should machlokas be so bad? Secondly, the Torah tells us that Moshe tried to reconcile with Dasan and Aviram, and Rashi comments from Chazal on that attempt, we see from Moshe's initiative that you shouldn't try to perpetuate a machlokas. It's a very nice gesture that Moshe made, but this statement of Chazal seems to imply that anything short of proactively trying to make peace and shalom is considered ipso facto a form of perpetuating machlokas. In other words, it seems like Chazal are telling us it's not bad enough just that you are involved in machlokas, even the lack of affirmative attempt to resolve the machlokas is considered a problem. Really? Is there such a thing? I am affirmatively, positively acquired, I'm v'chiv, to quelch machlokas, and anything short of that constitutes perpetuating, being machzik the machlokas? That seems a little bit harsh, and a little bit drastic. Why should that be? Finally, the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Kofiud Amar Aleph, says, machlokas over balav. If you perpetuate a machlokas, you violate an iser. And at least According to many opinions in Rishonim, not all, but many Rishonim say that it's a bona fide Isr Daraisa to be involved in Machlokas. Not just a bad 
Musar idea, bad midos, but an actual iser. Why should that be? What's the iser? To answer all of these questions, I think we need to take a step back and ask a more basic question, which may seem at first glance to be somewhat technical, but I think it's actually very profound and gets to the heart of the matter. How do you define machlokas? In other words, what is the difference between disagreement, which is, seems to be a natural part of the world and doesn't seem to be such a bad thing, and machlokas? Is every disagreement a machlokas? That seems to be obviously not true. But where's the line? Where is the line between healthy or at least permitted disagreement and clearly prohibited and very problematic machlokas? That's not an obvious uh, question to answer. How do we approach this? I'd like to suggest an approach based on the thought of the Maharal. Mishnah Perkyavos in Perk Aleph tells us, Mishnah Yerches, that Shalom, the opposite of Machlokes, but actual peace and harmony, is one of the three things that the world stands on. And commenting on that Mishnah, the Maharal says in his commentary to Perkyavos, called Der Chachaim, that Machlokes is when an individual, or the two individuals who are fighting, each one wants Hakol, wants everything cannot imagine, cannot allow for the possibility that someone else would disagree. And in fact, because of this vicious clash of visions, each one wants to completely be mevatel, to nullify or cancel the other. In other words, what the morale is teaching us, I think, is so important and profound. And that is that the essence of machlokes, the problematic form of disagreement, is when it's not just a difference of opinion, but rather the bittel, of the other, the cancellation, the negation of the other person, the inability to comprehend that despite another person's views or life decisions, that's not a sufficient reason to cancel the other person, or mimavatel those views. If you don't realize that, then every disagreement will turn into a machlokes, and that is seriously problematic. That is being a ba machlokes. True shalom comes from a profound realization that HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world with different people who have different opinions. And yet, if you can live in Ahava and Ahava with each other, that is the exact opposite of Machlokas, because Machlokas is the bitul, the nullification, the cancellation of the other person and his or her views. Shalom is not agreeing with everybody, but learning how to live with people who you disagree with, but to do so agreeably. Machlokas is when we nullify, cancel, or mavatal the opinion and the essence of the other person. If we are adamant that others must be kofuf to us, to bend to, to our will and our opinions, that is machlokes, not merely disagreement. The Maral further states later in Perk Yavos on Perk Gimel Mishnah Dalid that part of the Kvod Shamayim, the great honor that is afforded to Hashem, is when all the different people who have different deos, but nevertheless are unified in service to Hashem. And therefore Hashem Davka made all of us unique and individual with our own opinions. And therefore, says the Maral, to be mevatel, to cancel people who you disagree with, is not just a ben aram l'chaveiro problem, but in fact it is a ben aram l'makom problem. It is a complete impugning of Hashem's ultimate purpose in creating the world the way He did, and it is seriously compromising His ability to genuinely achieve kavod shemayim. Perhaps one or two more ideas connected to Korach, which will illustrate this point in a very beautiful way. The Pasuk tells us, as we previously mentioned, that Moshe sent for Dustin and Aviram. He tried to reconcile and make peace with them. They didn't come. They resisted his attempts. And he got very angry. And the Medrash notes this. And after all, we could ask, you know, it's true they didn't make peace with Moshe, but they didn't argue with him. Why did Moshe get so mad? And the Medrash itself says, because when you're in a disagreement with someone and you talk it over, you feel better about it. 
But when that doesn't happen, we can't talk about it. Yesh lo tsar. In other words, perhaps we see from this, in light of the interpretation we've been seeing from the Maral, that in fact, their silence, their inability, or their unwillingness, I should say, to disagree with Moshe actively, to talk to him about it, their silence was strengthening the machlokas, since it expressed a bitul of Moshe and his point of view. And this, I think, is a profound lesson. Of course, there's much to talk about, but we can learn already from what we've seen, the difference between disagreeing and machlokas. At the opening of Parshas Korach, it mentions the participation of Dosan and Aviram. <clears throat> and commenting on this, Rashi points out from the Medrash that even though Dosan and Aviram were from Shevet Ruvain, and therefore they had <clears throat> no real personal interest, nothing to be gained by joining in the dispute between Korach and Moshe over the leadership and which families of Shevet Levi should really be in the leadership. They weren't even part of that Shevet. But nevertheless, <clears throat> due to the quirk of how the Shvatim were camped in the desert, since their Shevet was in fact encamped next to the part of the Levium, the Kahas family where Korach was from, unfortunately they end up getting influenced by Korach and his rebellion, and as the Medrash uh, notes poignantly as Rashi quotes, Oil Russia, Oil Shreino, that uh, Nebuch, even though uh, really they had nothing to be gained, but because they were close to the Russia, close to Korach, they ended up getting influenced by him and following him. This is one example or one idea of oil Russia, that you shouldn't live near Russia because you could get influenced uh, by that person. In fact, the Rambam and Hechos Deos, Peregvav, very uh, famously discusses and very powerfully how this is the Teva Adam. this is the nature of a human being, that their Nimshach Achar we follow after we are influenced by our neighbors, our surroundings, our sviva, and therefore a person has to make sure to only be mischaber, to connect with, to surround themselves with good people, and not like uh, unfortunately occurred with the hischabras to Korach. We have to learn the lesson of Oil Rasha, Oil Shreina. What's interesting is that later on, at the end of the story, right before the punishment as the earth opens up to swallow Korach and his people, the Torah tells us that uh, Hashem says, V'yedaber el ha'eda, lemor, tell all the other people nearby, suruna me'al ahalei ha'anashim ha'rashaim ha'ela, move away from those tents, you don't want to go anywhere near there, because you don't want to get caught up, you don't want to get destroyed with uh, the sin that they did, they don't want to get caught up in their punishment. And this seems to be another form, another dimension of Oil Russia. Here the issue is not about learning from them the way we originally saw from Rashi, the way the Rambam said, they're about to be punished. There's nothing to learn from. But rather, it seems like there's another phenomenon, which is if you're too close to Rishayim, sometimes you might get punished just while they get punished. That would be a different form of Oil Russia. And in fact, Chazal and numerous places in the Gemara and Sukkah, the Mishnayos and the Goyim, Avast Rabbi Nassan, all speak about this second dimension, the idea that Oil Russia can also take the form of don't get too close to Rishayim because you could get punished like them. And a classic example is someone who shares a common wall, is a neighbor with someone who speaks Lashon Hara. So some forms of Lashon Hara end up getting punished with Nigei there's a form of tsara'as that can afflict the house. And we know, depending on the circumstances, sometimes the wall that has the spots of saras will have to be knocked down, even if it's a common wall. And therefore, if you're a neighbor, you didn't do anything wrong, you didn't speak Lashon Hara, but because your neighbor did, your wall may end up getting destroyed. That's another example, again, of this second dimension of Oil Rasha, Oil The Mishnah 
In the beginning of Pirkei Avos, in Perak Aleph, Mishnah Zayin tells us in the name of Nita Harabeli, Harchek Meshachin Ra, avoid a bad neighbor, Va'al Tischaber LaRoshia, and whether he's your neighbor or not, stay away from Roshayim. Maybe they, they seem like on the one hand, maybe they're two different things, but basically it seems somewhat redundant. Why the need for both uh, clauses in, in, in the phrase, in, in, in the statement of Nitan Arbaili. And the Bartanura basically explains exactly the point we've been making. That in fact, there are two dinim, two different dimensions to this idea of oil rasha, oil shreina. On the one hand, shalo tilmod mi masav, stay away from them because you might end up getting influenced and learning from their ways. But second of all, in addition to that, stay away because shalo tilake imo bimapalaso. You don't want to get cut up when Hashem is ready to punish that person and bad things happen. If you're nearby, you could become and is an innocent casualty. And of course, this raises the question, why is that fair? If I didn't, if I didn't learn from the person, why should I get punished? And perhaps one answer that the Bartanura quotes from the Perkader Bliezer is based on a mushal. The Perkader Bliezer explains that just like you can't go into a tannery, a place where they're working on hides and the chemicals are very, very strong, you can't avoid, unfortunately, some of that bad smell attaching itself to you, whether you bought anything or not. But when you walk out of that store, you'll have some of that bad smell attached. So too, if you're too close to Rishayim, even if you don't learn from their ways, nevertheless, some of their bad habits and bad midos will attach to you. Even if you don't do exactly what they're doing, it still has a negative impact. That's that's perhaps one possibility. The Mogain Avos, the Rosh Beitz, in his commentary to Perk Yavos, has a fascinating second explanation. He says that the reason that you're punished is because on some level you are contributing to their sins. Even though you didn't do anything wrong yourself, you didn't commit the sin, but the fact that that person was able to be your neighbor, your friend, uh, your, your your social companion, and faced no social, social stigmatization, didn't face any consequences, you kind of just, you know, made all's well, you know, you took the path of least resistance, you didn't say anything to them, they felt like they could be a good friend, they could be a neighbor, they could be a community member of good standing despite their sinning, therefore they were never motivated to correct their ways. Had you in some way, again, it's tricky how to do this practically, we all know, but says the Maginovos, if you had actually said something to them, then maybe you wouldn't be punished. But if you just act like a good friend and a good neighbor and don't do anything, then why should they try to improve themselves? Perhaps you're cut up a little bit for that reason. Let's just briefly mention a few of the practical halachic applications where, interestingly enough, this idea is expressed by Poskim. So first of all, is the most obvious, Ben Yonah says, before you move into an area, it's part of a chiyuv to look to see who the neighbors are. That's number one. Number two, the Rambam and Hilchos Ishos and Perak Gimel says that either husband or wife can object to the neighborhood that the other ones, the spouse wants to move to if they feel it won't be a good religious environment. Even though the husband is responsible for providing that to his wife, but his wife can object based on if she doesn't think it's the right neighborhood. But conversely, even if the wife wants to move to a certain area, the Rambam says the husband could object uh, as well. Ramosha Feinstein has a tshuva in the first volume of Yeridea where he is asked if you can do a business with Roshayim. And in the end of the day, suffice it to say, he thinks even though it's not obvious, but he thinks the answer is in fact yes. There's also a halacha brought down in Shulchan Aruch Yeridea about not burying a tzaddik next to a rasha. That's also a very interesting uh, application of this. And last but not least, Aruga Sabosim has a tshuva where he says you can't rent your house out to someone who's going to use part of it for business if the business will be an usher business. While many sources suggest that the origins of Korach's rebellion were some combination of a lust for power, jealousy, or other such petty interests, there are many other sources that suggest that in fact there was a deeper, more ideological, 
more idealistic spiritual rebellion that, and debate, really, that was taking place between Korach and Moshe. One such source is the opening passage of the Kedushas Levi on Parshas Korach. The Kedushas Levi, the famous work of Rav Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, and there he explains in the beginning of our Parsha that we can understand the debate on a deeper level, on a very ideological, fundamental level, when we start with a comment of the Ramban. The Ramban notes that the rebellion of Korach took place as it's presented in the Torah, following the chait of the Meraglim. And it's not a coincidence, says the Ramban, because only after the chait of the Meraglim, once the people had heard the terrible news that they weren't going to be able to go into Eretz Yisrael, 40 years, they all going to die in the desert, their relationship with Moshe soured. There was a certain distance that was created, and there Korach exploited that, he had the ripe opportunity to rebel against Moshe. But what was the basis of the rebellion? Says Rav Levi Yitzchak, working off of this Ramban, on a deeper level, it's not just that the Maraglim and the not going Eretz Yisrael provide an explanation for the timing of the rebellion, but on a deeper level, says Rav Levi Yitzchak, that symbolizes the actual arguments in the rebellion itself. Cesar Levi Yitzchak, we could suggest that there are two models, hypothetically at least, two different models for religious life. There's what he calls the Dor HaMidbar, symbolizing the idea of living a purely spiritual life, as the Jews did in the desert. They had a purely spiritual life, purely intellectual, not attached to the need to live concretely in physicality. They didn't have to worry about their food, their clothing, their protection. Everything was spiritual. They could just focus on HaKadosh Baruch Hu. On the other hand, he suggests that there is a different model, which he calls Dor Eretz Yisrael, and that refers to the life of Asiya. After all, a life of action is symbolized by the very act of entering and needing to conquer Eretz Yisrael. A complete change from living a life of miracles with the Mon and the Be'er and the Amud Esh and the Anan, etc., to a normal life of farming military conquest, economy, etc., in Eretz Yisrael. Midbar, he says, is milashon dibur, just like dibur is, all, is a pure essence, there's nothing physical about speech, so too the Dorha Midbar was a purely spiritual realm. But Eretz Yisrael, he says, that was something much different. This could be contrasted, he says, when we think about the way Moshe and Yoshua, respectively, led certain battles. When Moshe led battles, which we read about back in Shmos, he just davened and stood there and the miracles happened, the war was won. As opposed to when Yehoshua conquers the land, the Navi itself tells us in Sefer Yehoshua how he led the people in the battle and they really had to fight in a normal way. Says Rabbi Yitzchak, what's the message? Of course the Torah in its origins is ultimately spiritual, intellectual. It was given to Moshe, al-piha dibur, as we just saw dibur in Midbar. Of course it was dibur. But at the same time, says Rabbi Levi Yitzchak, the Kiddush of the Torah HaKadosh is that ultimately, that Dibur has a hitlab shut gam ba'olam ha'asiyah, in his words. The essence of the speech, the essence of the message of the Torah is and must be ultimately clothed, in his terminology, in the world of action. It must take the form of action. It's not enough to have purely just the Dibur, just the ideas. Those ideas need concrete expression through the world of action, through the actual mitzvot. He suggests that this is perhaps what's also alluded to in the Pesach in the Navi Yeshayahu and Parak Memdalid, where Hashem says about Himself, Ani Rishon v'ani acharon. What does that mean, God saying, I am first and I am last? Ani Rishon, we understand. Any way you want to translate the word Rishon, first, best, most important, they all relate to Hashem. But what does that mean, that God is acharon, He's the last? 
So Rav Levi Yitzchak explains that on a deeper level, it doesn't mean first and last. What it really means is, Hashem is saying, I can be found from the Rishon to the Achron, from one extreme to the other. In the world of thought, yes, but also in the world of action. In the world of Dibor, yes, but no less in the world of Maaseh. In the world of Ruchnius, but even as well, Olam HaAchron, in the Olam HaGashmius, Hashem can be found anywhere. Says Rav Levi Yitzchak, when Korach saw that the people were not going into Eretz Yisrael, he mistakenly assumed that and made the mistake that they were now permanently remaining in the world of Dibor, not realizing that it was just going to be a temporary forty-year delay. But when they would go into Eretz Yisrael, ultimately they would ultim- they would combine the two. But Korach thought, no, this means that we're only going to be in a world of Dibor, and only in a world of Dor HaMidbar, only in a world of pure spirituality, not connected to mitzvos, not connected to physicality. What he didn't understand is that Torah's Moshe would ultimately be synthesized in a world of action. That was his mistake. And so beautifully says of Levi Yitzchak, that's why when Korach was punished, it's not a coincidence, he was punished with Vatiftach HaAretz Espiha. The earth opened up and swallowed him alive. Why of all ways to punish him? Was it that way? Couldn't Hashem have punished him in so many other ways? Which of course he could have. Says Rav Lev Yitzchak, The Aretz symbolizes the world of action, the concrete, the Gashmi. And it was this specific method that was chosen to punish Korach to symbolize the fact that Torah's Moshe is not only in Shamayim, but Tiftach Aretz, Hashem's world the Torah, Hashem's presence is found just as much ultimately in the Aretz as well. The combination of the Olam HaAsiyah and the Olam HaDibor. And to concretely express Korach's mistake, it's not only the timing, but also the method of punishment. The earth swallowed him alive to teach him, him and more importantly teach all of us this lesson that Hashem is found and the Torah is expressed in the Olam, in the Hitlabshut of the Asiyah in the world of the Aretz as well. Just like we saw Hashem is in Shemaim, Hashem is in Aretz. Just a final point, the Sefer L'Or Kedushas Levi suggests based on this, that perhaps that's a deeper explanation of Korach's argument when it came to the Tcheles. If the whole purpose ultimately is the message, so then a garment that's Kulo Tcheles doesn't need any particular mitzvah. That should be enough, because we have the message, look at all that Tcheles. But of course he was wrong, because even though there is a message already in the garment being Tcheles, but still need the olam ha'asiyah. You still need the concrete mitzvah. As important as the dibur is, it can never replace the mitzvah. The concrete asiyah and the mitzvah always needs to be there to give expression to the dibur.